Okay, this uh, class has been on uh, church history, and uh, Ryan said something last week to the effect that church history is important, that you know what happened from the time of uh, the New Testament until the Lord comes again for the church, known as the rapture of the church. Well, uh, I'm not a, a history student. Uh, I been in church history classes and it's never caught on with me uh, to really get into the study of church history. Uh, I think it's important and it's known. We have historian theolo theologues who enjoy church history and study all of the works of the great fathers. I'm not ha I don't happen to be one of them. That's not my area of interest or expertise. But I am interested in what the Bible has to say and the Bible does talk about church history, believe it or not. It starts out in the book of Acts, and it goes through Acts chapter 28, and it takes us from the day of Pentecost until A.D. 66, or the middle A.D.'s, 60s. And then we have church history in, again, from the age 90 all the way to the rapture of the church. God gives us a history in prophetic form and in doctrinal form. So that's what I'm going to, uh, I'm not going to do this in detail, but I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 2. <laughs> Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapters 2 and 3 record uh, a very personal letter of Jesus Christ to seven individual churches that are in existence at the time of John, who is exiled now in Patmos for preaching the gospel. Uh, Paul started the church at Ephesus, was there three years, and he left. And after five years later, approximately, here comes John the apostle, and he becomes the pastor of this church. He has now been exiled for a while, and he's on the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea, where they normally took prisoners and they mined for the government. In these letters that we have in Revelation 2 and 3, we see the sovereignty of Christ. We see in chapter 1, he walks among the seven candlesticks, which are explained in Revelation chapter 1, has the seven individual churches uh, that come in chapters two and three. In, these, uh, in this letter, there is a universal application to all of the uh, churches to, and, and to the end of the letter in each of the seven. Furthermore, there are three main approaches that scholars have taken about these chapters two and three in the churches. The first one is a historical approach that it was seven churches and that's the end of it and they were existing at this time. And so after Revelation or after age 100 AD, it is, it is now history, it is, has nothing more than to do with that. This would be a non-millennial position that the whole book of Revelation is not futuristic, it is historical. And the sufferings you read about in the uh, book of Revelation took place around 70 AD at the fall of Jerusalem. Typical uh, interpretation would be these seven churches are typical of the church age. And uh, they represent seven kinds of churches which make up the church age. That would be a very uh, typical approach by evangelicals who are of a premillennial position. That's the position that they would take. And then there's a prophetic viewpoint, and this is a, that comes from a future outlook of the book of Revelation. And this sees the seven churches typifying uh, the periods of church history from Pentecost, Acts 2, to the rapture in Revelation chapter 4. My approach will be a mixture of two, the typical and prophetic. I, I can't leave either one alone. 
and I think there's a, a point to be made between them. Sounds a little compromising maybe to you, but it, ha it, it, it satisfies my mind. Uh, Christ's letter is organized in the following manner, as Herman Hoyt notes. There's a destination, there's a description, and uh, there's a diagnosis, and there's a demand in basically all seven churches. The anal analysis of the church is for the purpose of sifting out the wheat from the tares. That's the purpose of the letter. And the church, if you've been uh, in, even slightly alert, you know there's been a lot of changes from Acts chapter 2 until where we are now in the history of the church. So let's take a look at these churches. We can't be overly uh, exhaustive in this or we would be here uh, a long time. Uh, as much as I'm going to do a flyover, this may not be possible, but I'm going to try it, to take a look at each of the seven. But I, in, as I look this over, as I look my notes over, I think I'll go to the conclusion first. So go back to the bottom of your page on page two and take a look at the conclusion. And when you look at these seven churches, you come up with this. You come up with the losing of the first love in Ephesus to the lukewarmness in Laodicea. You start out with Jesus Christ and real orthodoxy in the first church in Ephesus and you end up in Laodicea with the church where where is Christ? Can I come in? He's locked out of the church and he'll come in to those who will receive him. So you start out with the church it's very orthodox but loses its first love but by the time you get to Laodicea, you, all, you have a church that has locked Jesus Christ out. So in that sense, I see it prophetically, as we said. And uh, yet all seven churches were written to at the very same time. And I would say all seven churches in the book of Revelation uh, are existing all at the same time. So you have every one of the seven churches in Revelation existing all at the same time, but it might be in one area or one era of time that you have uh, a one church more dominant in one area or a period of time than you do in others as you look at these uh, seven churches. So uh, in doctrine, we, we have the form of legalism in Smyrna and uh, uh, the Lord being pushed out in Laodicea. Interesting how that all happens. From the worldly union in Pergamos, we have worldliness affecting the church all the way to the rapture of the church in Revelation chapter 4. From the unity of the world in Thyatira, where they unified with the world, we have the defilement with the world in all the rest of the churches. And there's an entreaty and warning to each one in the church age in whatever of the seven churches there are. When you go back to the book of Revelation and look at chapter one, you see Jesus Christ, a portrait of Jesus Christ. He's described there and as a picture, a picture you can't paint. But it's nonetheless the picture. Uh, and when you view that, you see the glory of Christ. Then you also see, as an introduction to chapter 2, he says, uh, verse 17, when I saw him, John speaking, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me and saying, do not be afraid, I'm the first and the last at the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. 
He had the keys of death and Hades. He released Hades. He released Hades and he took them to glory with him in his ascension. He, so he, therefore, in verse 19, he gives you an outline of the whole book of Revelation. He says, write these things which you have seen, the portrait of Christ. You saw that, John. Write it down. And the things which are, and he writes the seven, the letters to the seven churches. And then he said, and the things which will take place after these things. So after what is are now, then chapter four, he continues on and is futuristic from that point on. So uh, there's also some tip-offs in the book of Revelation. He said, uh, after these things, and that occurs again in the book as well, chapter uh, four, look at chapter four, verse one. After he's written the seven letters to the churches, he writes, after these things, I look, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet, speaking with me said, come up here, and I will show you which must take place after these things. So the church era, if I follow the book of Revelation, if I follow the book of Revelation chronology wise, then we are in a specific area which we would label and I would label as the church age, the age of the Holy Spirit, where we have, according to Ephesians and according to Colossians, we have, this is a mystery in this particular era where you have the Jews and Gentiles in one body. Uh, Paul makes mention of that in Ephesians. He makes mention of that also in the book of Colossians. So now he writes to seven churches. And it's interesting to know too, every number in Revelation is literal. There's no reason to take it not literal. Seven churches. And uh, seven appears quite often in the book of Revelation. It appears in uh, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls of wrath. And it appears also in, in days are numbered and also months are numbered in the book of Revelation. So you, you have seven would be a complete number, and so there's no reason to add any other kind of church in here. This covers all of them and every type of church that, that we have here. Also in, Revela in Revelation chapter one, Jesus is walking among the candlesticks, seven, which he spells out to be the seven churches, which speaks to us of Christ's sovereignty in the church. This is not our church. This is not my church. This is not our church. This is Christ's church. And we need to recognize he is the head of it. And he is in charge of it. In fact, we pointed out last week, we were, uh, our uh, weekly giving has been down and, and, uh, and uh, we are, uh, are feeling the effects of it from the leadership standpoint. But you know, God is the giver of this church, not givers. We don't need more givers. We've got a Lord that will give, and gives through all of us. But it's the Lord who gives. This is his church, and he provides. And maybe he's just putting a noose around their neck a little bit and saying, you know what? You've been fat and sassy too long. It's time finally to look up and realize, you know, you do need the Lord after all. And that's not a bad thing, quite frankly. It's not a bad thing if we have to go to the Lord. If we had a $200,000 in a checking account, how much prayer would we spend about whether we should, what we should do? I mean, really. 
I don't know about you, uh, where you've had to live from paycheck to paycheck, but I've had to. And I, I remember, how am I going to pay for the bill next week? And God always provided. And I remember being in churches where me and the, and the chairman of the elder board sat down and said, okay, we'll, pay, we'll instruct our, our uh, treasurer to pay this bill this week, and then we can hold off. It isn't due till the 15th and so on and so forth. And you know what? All of those churches are functioning. Not one of them went under. They never do. And we've seen God provide. And what a way to see God provide and encourage the whole church. So he's in charge. Well, let's take a look at the first letter at the church of Ephesus. Paul spent three years at Ephesus, so this is a very uh, well-grounded church. John the Apostle was also in this church as well. And we can say of this church, as you read it through, we won't read through all of it, but uh, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says, and here we have our uh, diagnosis. He says, I know your deeds and your labor, your perseverance, that you cannot tolerate evil people, and you have put those who call themselves apostles to the death, and they are not and you found them to be false. So you can say of this church, it was very energetic. You could say of this church, it was evangelistic, toil and perseverance. Okay, what is the command, just to remind ourselves, what is the command that God gave to the church? Christ gave to the church just before he went to heaven. Here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want the church to do. Number one, go into what? All the world, All the world and do what? Preach the, Preach the gospel. Number two, teaching them all things whatsoever I've commanded you. That is the demand of Christ upon the church. And so that's how he evaluates the church. And when you look at these seven churches, that's the way he evaluates them. Okay, this church was very evangelistic. It was very separatistic. That is, it separated itself from evil. Notice, it cannot tolerate evil men. It was fundamental. It put to the test the so-called apostles. There are 12 apostles, and then there were a few others. The 12 apostles were the 12 men that Jesus appointed and Matthias in Judas' place. Then there were other apostles, and these apostles were apostles of the church, like Barnabas. And a couple other men were called apostles. Now, along came in this church people who said, we're apostles. You know, a guy comes into the church and he says, we're an apostle. Well, the church at Ephesus said, we're going to put you to the test. We're not accepting this at face value. And they found them out to be false prophets. They were in an enduring church. They were steadfast. It says they have not grown weary. They were steadfast in what they did. And they stuck to the stuff. They had a discerning church. They hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. <clears throat> now who are the Nicolaitans? That has been a... Uh, subject over 2,000 years who the Nicolaitans are. Probably the first few hundred years everybody knew. But now looking back, we wonder who in the world are the Nicolaitans? And that goes to two different viewpoints. One is the Nicolaitans are a group that followed Nicholas, who was one of the deacons in Acts chapter 6. And this probably has the most support. The Nicolaitans were a group of antinomianism, that is, they took, the, they took uh, the fact that they weren't under the law to an extreme, and they opened the, the church to licentiousness. Uh, because we're under the law does not mean we, we are, uh, the old nature can act in every free way at once. 
there are uh, certain restraints that are put on us by the Holy Spirit through the Word. But you can easily get into licentiousness and, and you say, I'm not under law, I can do what I want to do, basically, and, and feed my own nature. So that seems to be, uh, uh, of late, the more popular viewpoint. The other one is the word Nicolaitan is two words, Greek words. It's laos, which is people, and it's Nicado, conquered. So the other group says, this is a group of laymen. Uh, a group lay people came out, where we get congregational government, where they vote on everything, and, and uh, that tends to uh, lead to uh, less than deep theology in a church when you vote on everything. I took a church in Hutchinson and uh, we voted on everything. We voted on ushers, we voted on song leaders, we voted on Sunday school teachers. Everybody from high school on up voted on their Sunday school teachers, Sunday school superintendent, deacons, uh, uh, trustees, everything. So we spent a whole night uh, voting and we would spend two nights in a nominating committee putting everybody down. If you didn't make it as a deacon, you went to a trustee. If you didn't make it as a trustee, you went to a Sunday school superintendent. If you didn't make it as a Sunday school superintendent, you might have made it as an usher. And if you didn't make it as an usher, uh, you went down to uh, whatever. And I spent the next day trying to cheer people up who slid all the way down from the top to the bottom. What a pleasant job, quite frankly. But that's, uh, that's what some people think this is. Whatever it was, I'm going to sort of lean toward the, uh, I don't know definitively which uh, Nicolaitan group I'm in, but I will, I will lean toward the, uh, toward the licentious group. Seems to be fit in better. The censure of this church was they lost their first love. Their excitement over their relationship of being a bride of Christ turned into work and drudgery. It became a workaday drudgery and loyalty in the church. I'm not sure the church has ever regained that, the seven churches. At least we can say this, a professing church where being born again is not stressed, yet they call themselves church, I would say they, they don't have any first love. The excitement is generated by entertainment and whatever else. It's not generated from within because of my love for the Lord. Now a born again person can do that. He can be, re he's regenerated, he has a real love for the Lord, and his excitement is shown, their excitement is shown, but it can also be, it appears that excitement is there and it can be also pure emotion. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. You as an individual know what your situation is. So he says, if you, re, you need to repent and to do the deed you did at first. And this has always been true at repentance especially in Christianity, you got to go back to the first. You may have started out and you slacked off and your life is not what it ought to be or you're not even born again, but you better go back to the first. Any questions on Ephesus? I, I'm not covering it all, I know. I have a question. Not just about Ephesus, but all the letters. So you were explaining your view of like, Obviously, these churches existed in John's day, and they will also exist today. Today and in the end times, looking forward, and they're literal, literal churches. Are they also literal in location? Like the Church of Ephesus is like still the Church of Ephesus and will be the Church of Ephesus? No. Okay. Church of Ephesus. There's nothing in Ephesus right now. Okay. So it's like. The church was real and had real problems then, and then becomes, there's a form of that church in, in, it, in its beliefs Correct. that exist today and will exist in the end times. Right. The ch Ephesus, the city of Ephesus today is 
an archaeological wonder. Uh, if you go to the city of, Eca of uh, Ephesus today, you will see a, an auditorium and remains of the uh, temple of Artemis or the Roman Diana, the Greek Ar or the Persian Ar Artemis and uh, Diana were basically the same thing. You'll still see that there, and you'll see streets and whatever remains, uh, but there's no church. Now, some of these churches, like uh, Pergamus, there is a town, not called Pergamus, but the town is still on the same site, and there is a church there. But these churches typify, I think, in one sense, the seven kinds of churches you can have in the church age. And it might even be there's a bleed over from one church to another. And there might even be such a thing as there are people in the church, in a church, who hold one of these. So, uh, but there are seven kinds. And I guess as a, a reader of Revelation and a, a believer in Christ, when you read this, you see things in maybe that church or another church that, ah, that's me. That's me. Because we have a church in here and several churches that are orthodox but no evangelism. We study the Word of God, but we're not going into all the world preaching the gospel. See? And if I were to classify, and I'm going to be very honest with you, if I were to classify countryside, that's probably us to some extent. We're very true. We want to stay true to the sound of the gospel, but our mission is, is lacking, and evangelism is probably lacking. Not not saying of all of you. I mean, some of you are very active and really good, and some of you uh, probably are not. And so next September, the Sunday school class we're going to take on uh, missions and evangelism, and try to build that aspect of our church up. You got to get a church straight first, then then go out with the true gospel. So people know what they're saying when they go out. When you witness to somebody and the guy says to you, what do I have to do to be saved? Tell me, how can I be saved? Can you tell them? Can you say, okay, yes, that's a great question. And take them to the word and show them how to be saved or you'd have to say, I gotta call the pastors. Or pray that you get in contact with somebody who knows. Every adult member of Countryside Bible Church, in my opinion, we, we, our goal is that every person would know how to share the gospel at a moment's notice. I've been around some good ones. And uh, they've been a, a, a good encouragement to me when I've been around them. I remember sitting on an airplane uh, with uh, Tony Wade, some of you know Tony. And we're sitting on an airplane, and in between us, we we're going to a shepherd's conference. I sat a lady, and uh, she pulled out her Bible and started studying. So uh, Tony said, hey, studying the Bible. Yeah, I'm a associate pastor in Washington, D.C. So Tony said, oh, okay. Hey, what if this plane was going down in two and a half minutes? Could you tell me how to get to heaven? He stumbled and fumbled and went all over the place. And Tony said, you know, I think we're all in hell. Open quite a conversation with her. But could you? Could I? Somebody said, hey, this plane's going to crash in two and a half. pilot says, buckle up, we're going to crash in two and a half minutes. Somebody turned to you and said, how do I get to heaven? Could you tell them? Could you concise it that much? You don't always have to do it that much, but could you do it that much? Good question. Think it through. Does that answer your question, Thomas? Yes. Did I answer? 
Okay. So the church of Ephesus is one church. It's orthodox, it's evangelistic, but it's lost its first love. You sang a song like you were at a funeral. You, uh, service has no oomph. Uh, we're all here because we're all here because it's our duty. Or are we all here because we really love the Lord and we want to know what's the next word from God? And I want a fellowship with my fellowship my fellow believers. Why are you here? Question got answered. Alright. Church at Pergamos. This church uh, did not deny the faith in the midst of severe persecution. Instead of uh, fleeing the world, though, they were living in a place where Satan dwelt. I am, no, I'm, why am I in Pergamos? I should be in Smyrna. Okay. Smyrna was an energetic church. It endured uh, persecution and poverty. Remember the first 300 years of the church, the church was chased from pillar to post and the church people in Rome were ushered into Colosseums and slaughtered. Uh, let me ask a question today. Do we have a church of Smyrna in the world today? Absolutely we do. Churches in Muslim countries? Churches in China? Churches in Russia? Churches in Sudan? It's not very pleasant. But they were known as an energetic church, great persecution. They still had Judaizers coming in and bothering. And uh, Jesus says they're part of the synagogue of Satan. They're not really Jews at all. A true Jew is a person who's placed his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. An Israelite of the Israelites is a believer. Now, there's no censure to this church. Uh, there's no censure here. But the warning is to the believers, be faithful until death. You know, I always, people say, why can you pray for me? You know what I ask them? Pray that I can finish well. How many uh, Christians have fizzled out? I had a very close relative who told us when my wife said, where do you go to church? And she was very active as secretary in the church at one point, very solitary. Said, I don't go to church. I had a very bad experience and I'm done. My sad. How's that? Happens more than we think. Okay, Church of Prudence. Here's a church, instead of fleeing the world and satanic influence, lived in that very same area. The church did not deny the faith in the midst of severe persecution, as noted by the martyrdom of Antipas. We don't know who Antipas was. But he was famous in that day, and he was murdered for the faith. Uh, Christ's diagnosis of the church was the teaching of Balaam was the leavening of the church, which eventually led to the union of the church with the world. Remember Balaam, Numbers 24? He was on his, uh, he was a prophet who was for a prophet for hire. Balak hired him to come and curse the Israelites. When he came to curse the Israelites, on the way, a donkey balked. 
stopped and couldn't get it going. And he beat the donkey and it still wouldn't go. Finally, the donkey said, I can't go. Somebody's in the way. And who was it? An angel of Jehovah, the Lord himself. So uh, he wouldn't listen to man, Balaam, but he did have to listen to a donkey. So at one time, a donkey did talk. Obviously from the Lord. And, uh, every, and so every time he was to curse the Israelites, what happened? He, he gave a blessing. So they moved him over here, and he gave a greater blessing. Finally, he told Balak, I got to say what the Lord says. I can't say what, I, what you hired me to do. But I'll tell you what to do. Balaam said, I can't curse him, but I'll tell you how you can, get how you can really destroy the Israelites. Remember what he told them? Numbers 31, verse 6. Here's what he told them. Intermarry. Intermarry. Uh, do that. Send your women among them. Commit adultery and fornication. So uh, the church needed also to repent from the acceptance of the Nicolaitans which Ephesians hated, the church at Pergamos accepted. And if we go with the fact that they were basically licentious and antinomianism, then uh, that would also be comparable to what Balaam was telling. What is the thing that really destroys the church anyway? Is it not immorality? Is it not bad marriages? Is it not the family breakup? And you and I are living in a day when uh, sex sells, right? And it's getting more raunchy all the time. You go to uh, Europe or you go to South America and it's pure raunch. We still have a little bit of modicum here compared to those areas of the world that um, the Church of Pergamos uh, didn't deny the faith, but uh, they had a problem of leavening in the church had already begun from the teachings uh, typical of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. How about the church at Thyatira? The church had deeds of love, faith, and perseverance. There was an external appearance in this church seen in their great organization sound theology, and great social activity. They were really involved in this. The great organization, where do you think all the cathedrals are? External. But you go into South America, Honduras, Nicaragua, Brazil, and Europe, and in some of these little towns, what's the most dominant building you can see for miles away? The church. Organized to the hill. Social activity, feeding the poor, taking care of the poor, bringing in the orphans, doing all of those things which Christians should do. But not at the expense of preaching the gospel or teaching. Um, man, uh, there's a lot of suffering in this world, is there not? I did go see, by the way, uh, the movie, uh, what is it, Song of Freedom? Sound of Freedom. Oh, Sound of Freedom. It just reminds you again how much suffering is going on in this world. Unbelievable. Not only in that area, but other areas as well how filthy and rotten a world we actually live in. And we, we have the only message of hope. No other religion has it. We're the only ones. Let's not lose the heart of the message in serving our Lord. Okay. The centurism was the church was rebuked 
for her Jezebelinism. Who's Jezebel, for heaven's sake? The wife of Ahab. The wife of Ahab. Has anybody got a child named Jezebel? <laughs> Why not? She was one wicked lady. She wasn't in that church before. Well, no, she lived uh, 500, 600 years before Christ came. But the what she stood for is in that church. Remember, she brought in all kinds of worship of Baal and Ashtoreth. She brought all that into the church. And this is what he's saying. In this church, Jezebel came in. This evil woman came in and captured, in essence, the worship from Christ. I don't have to explain that to you what would typify that church. I think you would say uh, probably Catholicism in some ways. And uh, the challenge to the church is uh, they ought to be, they were rebuked. So the challenge was to separate from the deep things of Satan, otherwise they'll be dashed to pieces by the rock. There's people in that church who are born again. Believe it or not. R.C. Sproul's always said that there's people in Catholicism who are born again, but they can't believe what the church actually teaches. They're there and they worship, but they can't, you can't believe that Mary takes the place of Jesus. See, that's blasphemous. All right. So this church is headed for destruction. And when will that happen? At the rapture of the church. The church at Sardis. The church was known for her claims of orthodox, but little evangelism again. They were very active. The remnant is to be active and clothed with unsoiled garments. This would be the church typical of the Reformation. Very solid. A turn back to true theology and in depth. But not a missions program. It had a reforming attitude. The church at Philadelphia, verses 7 to 13 of Revelation 3. This church was evangelistic and had an open door before it. And uh, this was known as a missionary church. And in the last 200, 300 years, missionaries have gone from England and Europe and the United States all over the world. Started churches. Uh, even came to the United States and these men went out among our American Indians and, and witnessed and witnessed in Africa, China, Hudson Taylor in China, and others. Great missionary movement. Very solid. But this church was uh, very poor. Probably the poorest of all the churches. And yet God used it. You don't have to be rich and famous to have a vibrant testimony and a testimony around the world. You can take a little group at Countryside Bible Church and be changed much of the world just through the preaching of the gospel. You never know what God will do through his word and the Holy Spirit once we let it get out and once we get it out of our shell and our holy huddle. Furthermore, this church was promised an interesting promise Revelation 3.10. Somebody read it. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Whoa. Those that uh, make up this kind of a church, what? What's their promise? 
What trial is that for heaven's sake? Inflation? Yeah, what's to follow in Revelation? The trial that will trial the whole world. What do you know? Might be a pre-tribulational rapture after all. That's the only church that gets that promise. Uh, do you see it in any others? I don't either. But they all get something. The hidden manna, the white stone. They're all rewarded. The few true believers are all rewarded. Somewhere there it said there's a remnant in each church. Yeah, there's a remnant. That would be applicable to all. But if you go through the churches and see what God did for them, each of the churches get a reward, those that repent. Those that are truly overcomers. The word overcomers, we've said nothing about overcomers. But John, who wrote the book, uses overcomers in 1 John of those who are born again. So the overcomers are the ones in that church who are saved, be it Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, or Sardis, or Philadelphia, or Laodicea. Is this a Gentile church? Yes. I just like that because it's verse nine. It talks about it's a because that's why it's a Gentile church. It's going to lead Jewish people to the Lord. Yeah. They're going to God's going to cause the Jews to come to this church and worship with them. Uh huh. What is the promise to the church? Ephesians and and uh, Romans and Colossians. Romans nine, ten, and eleven says the Gentiles should make the Jews jealous because they're accepting the very same God that they've rejected. Read Romans 9, 10, and 11. Right now, the Jewish people as a nation are blinded because of their rejection of their Savior and their King God said, okay, I'm blinding you and I'm scattering you all over the world. And I'm going to the Gentiles with the message. Well, in the book of Romans, you, when you read the book of Romans, you hear a faint whisper going all through the book which says, what about the Jew? What about the Jew? Okay, chapter 9, I'm going to talk about the Jew. And he talks about the fact that God has elected whoever he's elected. And at this particular time, he's elected the Gentiles, but he hasn't forgotten the Jews. There will be a remnant according to grace. And also, Rod, they will bring them back into the land. Right. There will be a great going back to the land. But in Romans, he just says you'll be grafted. You are a wild olive tree grafted in. All right, you're grafted in. But I can take the wild branch out and put the real branch back in, which he's going to do. Is the tribulation when the Jews will be unblinded? Yeah, they'll be unblinded. They'll come to the fold. First of all, there'll be two witnesses. Out of the two witnesses, you have 144,000 Jewish males who become missionaries. And they're promised life. They won't be slain. They're promised life and they're going to witness like crazy. And millions will be saved in the tribulation. Two-thirds of which will die. And those that believers at the end of the tribulation, both Jew and Gentile, will go into the kingdom of Christ. Matthew 25. You have the judgment of the Gentiles. If you did it unto the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. Come and inherit the kingdom. Are the 144,000 primarily witnessing to Jews? Or will I think there'll be witnesses to the world. One interesting thing about, the, about judgment in, in, in any era God always shows grace. That even though 
horrible judgment. God always shows grace. There's always some that come out of there. And that'll be true in the future. All right. Glad to see it. Of this church in verses 14 to 23, we read the, we read the, uh, the diagnosis. They are wealthy. They're lukewarm. And they're blind. I would say if we have a dom dominant church in the United States, probably is the Laodicean one. Wow, have you seen some of the buildings that we built? I mean, uh, churches that we built, millions of dollars. I think uh, Mission Road was looking at building Bob, and what did they determine them to build what they needed would cost? I don't remember what the, the, top, the, the amount was, but it was way, way too much more. Yeah, millions of dollars. Just to build an addition out here to take care of our Sunday school would co it cost us about 1.3 million, right? Right now. Does anybody want to write a check? Okay. Thomas, you can. Yeah. You can write it. At least, at least you can do is write it. <laughs> Uh, would this be considered like because it's that because uh, I'm rich I have no need of I have need of nothing would this be like what you would think is like the modern mega church yeah huge buildings lots of rich preachers moving around like they're movie stars they uh, one of one of my friends in Kansas City uh, worked for an evangelist and uh, he was at one time the youth leader at our church and he's a great guy and he's squared away in every way but for a while he worked for this evangelist until he quit and so this evangelist went to a very large Nazarene church <clears throat> and he's going to have a family conference and so my friend Johnny set it all up all the conference did all the work and here comes the evangelist into the church, you know, had a, it was a real nice, fancy looking church, had a little drive in it. And the evangelist comes in and drives in, in a limousine. And the driver gets out, lets him on. He breaches his little deal, gets back, gets into the limousine and goes back. Had another guy in the church, in Mission Road, who, who sold uh, kitchen furniture. And this evangelist came in and wanted a table for his conference room. The table cost almost thirty to $40,000. And here sits Johnny, barely making that kind of money. Johnny had enough of it. But why do we have to live as, why do we have to live, why do the churches and preachers have to live like they're movie stars. They should have respect. I'm not denying the respect that he gives. I'm not denying that at all. But good grief, we're nothing more than servants of the Lord. We were not made angelic worshipers. Do you have a hand up? About eight years, the, the largest United Methodist church in the world is in Kansas City. And about eight years ago, um, they put on an extension of their worship center that basically did nothing more than it was up on a hill that you could see it from very far away. And it was this, this big uh, structure. It was $90 million. $90 million for, for something that really was just a show of showpiece. What's interesting, when I started in Kansas City in 90, uh, that church uh, was around 90. 
and that's that's a mega church. And I see his name uh, in uh, comes across them on uh, some of my material on the computer. Uh, he's teaching churches how to grow. There's no gospel there whatsoever. In fact, I don't think he even believes in a uh, literal resurrection. Yes? Rod, would you consider this the apostate church? I mean, is it apostasy? Is, how would you define that? As lukewarm. They've turned away. There, there's nothing there. What does Jesus say about this church, by the way? I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I wish you were hot. I wish you were cold. But I can't stand this doing nothing. I think that's true of us. We got a lot of lukewarm Christians. And God is saying to us, I wish you were hot. I, or cold. Then I know what to do with you. I remember having youth camp. And uh, we were we were in youth camp, and we had teenagers, and you had to climb to get them out of bed, and you had to climb to get them to do this, and work to do this. wasn't true of every student, but there's a general home. So uh, one of the counselors told me, he said, "Boy, next week we have junior high camp. That's going to be worse." And I said, "No, that's better." Those kids are up at the dawn and they're ready to romp and go and stomp and do. They get in this teenage, you know, and suddenly they're tired and moaning and groaning. These little junior high kids, they're full of vim and vigor and want to go and do, right? Doesn't God want us to have that kind of love and fervor and intention and do it? Guys graduate from seminary and well, been waiting for a church. Find one. Do something. Get yourself in it. I'm glad for the advice I got. God can't steer a ship unless it's moving. So I'm a senior in, a, in Bible college, and I've left the church that I grew up in. And they said, so I went to the, my professor, and I said, what do I do, put my name in the World Herald? and say, preacher, young preacher, wants church? He said, you know what? God can't steer a ship, let's just move So, that week in chapel, and in comes a guy, Northern Canada Evangelical Mission. My friend is a part of that mission, and they need people to go up in Northern Canada and minister to the, to the Indians, I sign up. I, I really didn't have a yen or an urge to go to the mission field, but I want to do something. The church opens up two weeks later. Hey, we need a guy to come and preach. Will you fill a pulpit? So I go preach. Fifteen minutes, people. That was it. People thought heaven came early. They were in the millennium. Thirty-five people. We come back next week. Yeah, I'll come back next week. But you have to order, you have to arrange a service. So I did. We had five congregational hymns. And I led them all. And 15 minutes. Because I figured they're, they're there for an hour. Should be there for an hour. And I, then they said, and this was in November, it said in January, will you take this church? said, no, I, I applied to mission, mission first. I'm only taking one at a time. And, I, and they said, well, we got to know. We got to know what to do. I said, okay, next Wednesday I'll let you know. That, that Tuesday, I got a letter from the mission saying, we can't, we cannot consider you as a mission at this point because not all your reference, one reference missing. And the one reference was from a guy in this church. <laughs> so I said, I'll take it. Here's the point. Be hot. Be cold. 
But don't be nonchalant. What does the Lord say about it? I don't like it. I wish you were hot or cold. Father, we thank you for your letter to the churches and we apologize for not getting into it even more, but we pray you'll challenge us that we're in the latter days, Father, and may we be the church of Philadelphia. May that characterize us, that we're orthodox, but we're also evangelistic. May that be our goal. May we work toward that end by the Spirit's help and by the Word's guidance. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.